Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. DeSantis hints at doing away with advanced placement classes in Florida amid a beef over an African-American studies course. State lawmakers look to make it harder to amend Florida's constitution, and Trump ramps up his attacks on Governor DeSantis. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and those are some of the stories I'll be discussing this week with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Finns. But first... Gentlemen, it's time for our pick a number. What do you have for us today, Antonio? You know, I'm going really low with 0.12. Antonio, invoking a decimal place here. How about you, John? Zach, you know, uh, I don't want to sound too much like a uh, Dos Equis, uh, beer commercial, but you know I don't always use decimal places. But when <laughs> I do, my number this week is 70.4. All right, John Kennedy, the most interesting man in Florida. And I'm going uh, high this week with uh, 699,000. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, advanced placement courses have long been a staple for ambitious high school students who want to get a jump start on amassing college credits. But DeSantis hinted recently that Florida might be better off without them. The governor has been feuding with the college board, which administers the AP program, over a new AP course in African-American studies that the governor objected to. DeSantis banned the course in Florida. Then, after the college board criticized the governor, he suggested some of AP's competitors, such as the International baccalaureate program might be better than AP, raising questions about whether he could ditch AP altogether. Antonio DeSantis certainly has a flair for picking education fights that get a lot of attention. There was even a big protest uh, in Tallahassee yesterday with Al Sharpton. I mean, this is really uh, catching some uh, some national interest here. Yeah, Zach, he does. But more importantly, he also seems to have a flair for winning those those fights. That's what's so noteworthy for so many people and for so many others, scary. Look, we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago when we discussed how former Republican Governor Jeb Bush also sought to reform Florida education, but was often stymied either by lawmakers or the state Supreme Court. It strikes me that DeSantis has had so much more success in part because he has done it from the ground up. You and John spoke a lot last year about groups like Monster Liberty and how DeSantis was targeting school board elections to make sure friendly candidates succeeded in getting control of school districts. Now, I've been watching the past few months as some of these those new conservative majorities and school boards have been, for example, ousting their county su- district superintendents, like the one where you're at in Sarasota County. Look, if you love DeSantis, you think this is genius and representative of a genuine grassroots effort. If you don't like DeSantis, you, this, you see this as a diabolical strategy that has had a chilling effect on education. Either way, we are in a position now where some of the most basic infrastructure of school curriculum, staples dating back to even the time when John and I were in high school, such as you mentioned, just mentioned the advanced placement courses and even the SAT college entrance exam are kind of under siege and now have kind of an uncertain future in Florida classrooms. And where practices like teachers keeping classroom libraries is also an uncertain and anxiety-producing thing. It were biographies of people like Major League Baseball legend Roberto Clemente and the Queen of Salsa, Celia Cruz, are now seen as suspect, and where Harry Potter books come under scrutiny for supposedly spinning witchcraft. This sounds like an over-the-top and going-too-far education policies act, but you know what? 
It points to Ron DeSantis as a formidable force in education policy setting. I, I really wonder, though, if this is going to go much beyond this uh, African-American studies course, though. I know DeSantis kind of, you know, opened the door a little bit with his answer this week. But, you know, uh, these are pretty important programs for a lot of uh, parents and students around the state. I mean, you know, really, is, is there anything political about an AP biology or chemistry exam? I mean, these are important uh, college uh, prerequisites for for a lot of students who can help them get credits and save money. Uh, and, if, and if you didn't have something like this, um, I, I could see it being a turnoff for a lot of parents, for people who wanting to move here, um, you know, and, and saying, well, are the school systems as, as good uh, as the school systems uh, where I'm living? Uh, what do you think? Is he bluffing a little bit on this? I don't think so. I mean, you know, you mentioned biology and chemistry, but remember the whole battle with the math books and the wording of questions that were seen as, you know, forming children's minds about LGBTQ plus issues or whatever. Uh, I, you know, look, the fact of the matter is a lot of high school graduates in Florida, their desire is to go either the University of Florida, FSU, or one of the state schools. So right off the bat, if, you know, if you have a different alternative, and those universities have to accept that because the governor wants it, then you know you could see where maybe an SAT isn't as important uh, to somebody who wants to stay in a Florida State University as opposed to somebody who wants to go to Harvard, one of the Ivy Leagues. So I, I think there's a lot of room for maneuvering here. I don't think it's as cut and dry as as we might have thought going into this. Yeah, and you're right. Nobody ever thought that woke math was going to be a thing, but uh, it, it has been in Florida. So who knows where this goes? Well, while DeSantis was waging war on AP exams, the Florida legislature was taking aim at the state's constitutional revision process, making it harder to amend Florida's constitution has been an obsession for the GOP lawmakers in recent years, as issues such as medical marijuana, a $15 minimum wage, and an environmental conservation uh, program made it onto the ballot and were approved by voters. Sean, what's the latest roadblock that lawmakers are considering for this process? Well, the, the Republican legislature likes to control state government, um, at, at least the policies it has to wrestle with. And uh, the latest attempt is to block citizen input through legislation that would increase to two-thirds vote what is needed to approve a citizen's initiative, a ballot initiative. Those are currently, uh, it's 60% uh, approval is what you need. Uh, legislature wants to bring it up to 66.67%. Um, now, as, as you mentioned, the, these initiatives through the years have yielded uh, required environmental spending, uh, medical marijuana being legalized, felons voting rights being restored, uh, the $15 minimum wage. But uh, legislators don't like being told what to do by voters. So uh, increasing the threshold for approval would serve to block a number of amendments from going into effect and, uh, of course, forcing legislators to deal with policies they don't really like. Now, you know, we know that through history, legislators, uh, particularly the Republican majority, they, they have found a way to stall acting or even sometimes change the intent of some of these ballot measures, uh, you know, once they're approved. But the 60% uh, level itself was an increase 16 years ago from what had been a simple majority needed to get uh, a ballot measure approved. Um, and, and that 60% 
was expected to kill off amendments that legislators didn't like. Well, you know, it's, several have been approved uh, through the years at that 60% threshold. Um, but again, because this would change the state constitution, uh, the legislation that is already advancing in the state house, it, the the legislation would have to be approved by voters. It would have to go on the ballot, and uh, this change, and um, if approved during this upcoming legislative session, it would go on to next year's ballot and need sixty percent to make it sixty six point six seven percent going forward. Um, uh, when you look back, the of, of the twenty three amendments that have been approved since twenty twelve. Um, almost half wouldn't have hit that two-thirds mark. So I guess in a way, the legislature is correct in assuming raising the standard for approval will kill off some ideas. But um, some think the proposed change may be designed to blunt what could be a vote as early as next year on recreational marijuana, which uh, supporters are trying to get on the 2024 ballot, and they'd need 60% that year. But uh, the idea is that, you know, if, if it doesn't make it, if it does make it to the ballot and it didn't get 60 percent next year, well, then uh, they'd have to come back again and then face that higher threshold of a two thirds approval. Um, it, 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 there is a little bit of a history for that, because uh, uh, you got to remember that the first time medical marijuana went on the ballot um nine years ago, it, it, it failed to reach uh, the 60% threshold. And uh, then it was approved the second time uh, two years later when it went before voters during a presidential contest year and uh, a big turnout. Um, the proposal also would have a provision that would allow for repeal of an amendment that is currently in the Constitution. But this time you could repeal it with the same percentage of the vote that it was approved by. Uh, kind of a weird catch, but it, it, in other words, it would not require two-thirds vote to remove one, but only the level that it was approved by. So um, that that's uh, maybe intended to make it easier to take some things out of the Constitution by this Republican-dominated government, uh, you know, kind of a sort of erasing the past, which seems to be a popular theme in Tallahassee these days, uh, given our struggles with as you just pointed out, teaching black history and uh, the fear of wokeness that abounds. So um, we'll, we'll see where this one goes. Uh, the constitutional amendment, to put it on the ballot, uh, th that needs approval from 60% of each of the House and the Senate. But Republicans are at that level in each chamber. So uh, one party rule may put this before voters to decide. So uh, stay tuned. Yeah, and it's really interesting that this comes just as the recreational marijuana initiative is gaining steam, and there's been millions of dollars going into the effort uh, to gather signatures for that. And you can tell that these marijuana companies are really gearing up and preparing for it. I, I was just uh, in downtown Sarasota over the weekend, and there was this uh, huge new medical marijuana storefront that had opened up that was like, it, you know, took up a, a large chunk of this downtown town block and it was uh, very bright uh, lots of windows they had uh, couches everywhere it looked like sort of like a uh, an upscale coffee lounge or something like that and it, it just seemed like you know this wasn't just for medical marijuana this is like them getting ready for 
recreational marijuana having this uh, lounge down there. And you made a good point. I mean, the the uh, medical marijuana didn't pass the first time, but the second time it got 71% uh, of the vote. So who knows, even if they change this, um, it, it, it might be something that could pass uh, either way. They have often been tripped up by their own uh you know, devices in the sense of uh, they've tried to, you know, raise the standard for approval. And uh, sometimes it's hurt some of their own initiatives when it goes on the ballot, something that they want approved because, uh, you know, it's just one of those tougher standards to hit. So, yeah. And medical marijuana and then recreational marijuana is a is a true wild card right now as to uh, whether it gets to the ballot and whether uh, they can get the level, whatever it may be, for approval. Well, the funny thing is, you, you talk about it tripping up some of the legislature's own uh, constitutional amendments. Uh, their amendment to make it so you have to get 60% of the vote could really trip this up because you could see that it might be hard to, to get 60% yeah. of the vote to to raise the threshold even higher. So uh, their own raising of the threshold could make it harder to raise the threshold uh, going forward. Well, while Florida lawmakers and DeSantis prepare for the legislative session that starts next month, Former President Donald Trump is ramping up his presidential campaign, and he's not waiting for DeSantis to announce his own campaign to start taking shots. Those criticisms are moving well beyond the Ron DeSanctimonious nickname that Trump bestowed on DeSantis shortly before his reelection. Trump recently shared a social media post that accused DeSantis of being a, quote, groomer and partying with students when he was a high school teacher. DeSantis shot back that he's not trying to, quote, smear other Republicans. Antonio, uh, this escalated pretty quickly. Yeah, and you know what? This time I don't see Trump backing off. By that I mean the former president, you know, first started name calling uh, DeSantis back in the fall. You meant like you mentioned with Ron DeSanctimonious, but at the time he, Trump got a lot of pushback, even from allies and friendlies who said the attacks on DeSantis were ill-advised, and so Trump stopped. Now he's ramping up the name calling by adding Meatball Ron to the list of ridicule monikers. Why now? Look, it's easy to speculate that, you know, Trump is eyeing polls showing DeSantis either ahead of him or in striking distance. You can speculate, too, that Trump realizes DeSantis is about to be in the conservative media spotlight with a legislative session, which is likely to bag about, what, close to $2 billion in tax breaks, plus permitless carrying of firearms. Those guesses are certainly educated ones. But I also wonder if there's a third. You know, Trump is emboldened by a surging narrative in the national media. That narrative goes something like this. DeSantis won't be able to withstand the name calling and the withering Trump attacks, and he'll fold like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio did in 2016. That narrative is winding its way through a lot of political conversations these days. The thing, though, I'm not really buying that line of thinking. I'm going to be a little bit of a contrarian here. For starters, look, low energy Jeb and little Marco didn't collapse so much because of the withering Trump attacks but rather because their own mega credentials and credibility were soft. To neo-isolationist Republicans, Jeb was the brother of notorious globalists and endless wars George W. Bush. And to the build the wall crowd, Rubio was an immigration flip-flopper. By contrast, DeSantis not only has solid mega credentials, but his own free Florida political brand and a slew of fresh public policy wins with which to furnish that far-right resume. Those credentials, that record, I'm thinking, may give DeSantis significant body armor. He could stand on the debate stage and say, hey, yeah, I like meatballs. Yeah, I'm not that charismatic, but do you want a, a, another rerun of the rock, of the political Rocky Horror Picture Show, or do you want someone who will get things done like I have in Utopian Red Florida? 
That being said, DeSantis will need to be able to swat away Trump's digs and attacks because if he freezes at the first nickname, funny or not, like he froze in that debate with Charlie Chris, he'll go from meatball Ron to meathead Ron pretty fast. I think you're right, Antonio. I think DeSantis does have a lot more MAGA street cred than either uh, Rubio or Jeb. Uh, it's interesting, though, This his tactic right now with Trump is, is definitely sort of deflection and demurring and not really – engaging him head on and, you know, maybe some sort of vague jabs at him. Recently, he's, um, you know, he said, or initially when Trump started going after him, he said, well, look at the scoreboard uh, after the election and kind of pointing to how big of a victory he had in Florida while uh, some of Trump's uh, candidates nationwide fell on their face. But you know, he, he hasn't really engaged with Trump in any meaningful way. Uh, there's a lot of speculation out there about whether that's sustainable. What are your thoughts? Well, it's sustainable as long as he's not in the ring, as long as he's going around Florida, being governor of Florida and governing Florida, either through the legislative session or what he does, like this appearance that he did yesterday uh, on Wednesday in West Palm Beach, talking about uh, the, the uh the social TikTok. media, the TikTok, yeah, the TikTok plan. As long as he's doing that and taking maybe one or two questions like, you know, from a friendly crowd like he had uh, up in West Palm Beach, yeah, he can do that. I mean, that's that's pretty easy to do. It's it's easy to dodge this. But once he's, and if and when he throws his hat in the ring, that's a different realm. And now he's going to have to engage. But I do believe that, that having this MAGA credential, his own, you know, basically his own his own kind of base to a certain extent. I, I think that gives him a lot more firepower and a lot more protection than certainly either Jeb or Markle had. And we all knew that uh, Trump wasn't going to play nice, but the fact that he's gone to groomer and meatball Ron so quickly is uh, is is a sign of this is going to get real, real ugly. Uh, we'll move on to our our numbers here. Uh, John, you want to tell us about yours? Yeah, Zach, uh, my 70.4, that's million dollars. And that's what uh, friends of Ron DeSantis had in its account at the beginning of this month. That's according to the uh, state's uh, campaign finance reports. Um, De DeSantis has raised a you know a, a crazy amount of money, two hundred eighteen million dollars, and spent about a hundred million in easily winning re-election. Uh, you know now with a presidential bid on the horizon, he's uh, he's really got the cash to do the things that you've got to do to look good early. Uh, once he actually kicks off the campaign, which is expected. To happen sometime in May, you know, when the legislative session ends, uh, it, it th that that money, that that seventy million dollars that he has hanging around, that looks even better when you consider that the two actual Republican candidates for president now, former President Donald Trump and now former South Carolina uh, Governor Nikki Haley, they they are well back when it comes to money on hand. Trump has about ten million on hand, and uh, Haley, who just got into the Republican presidential race. She's raised about 17 million. Now, uh, you know, DeSantis may have to nuance some of these dollars under federal campaign law. In other words, some of the state money may not qualify for federal office seeking activities, but but it can be easily converted into a federal committee of some kind to support his candidacy, basically. So he's 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 not going to have to take a bus. Let's put it that way to uh, to Iowa, New Hampshire or South Carolina or any of the other early primary states. I, I, I'm guessing that once this legislative session ends and he goes full presidential, 
we we may not actually see him much in Florida. I, I suppose he can enact things like shipping migrants somewhere, uh, intimidating possible illegal voters more, uh, bullying Disney and Florida schools and universities. Those are all uh, signature moments that I'm sure he'll probably continue to try to amplify, maybe even from a distance. But I think uh, most of his resume enhancements are probably going to happen during this legislative session. And uh, then he'll be on the road selling himself. And uh, that's where he's already got the cash to finance his travels, uh, his advertising and, and much more. Yeah. And that cash uh, seems to be allowing him to really lay the groundwork behind the scenes. I mean, he's kept all of his uh, political uh, team together from his governor, uh, his governor's reelection bid. Uh, it seems like that is, um, you know, building uh, to this uh, presidential announcement after the legislative session. But he's with that money, he's been able to kind of keep those pieces in place, which would be pretty important for him to hit the ground running. Antonio, you want to tell us about uh, your number? Yeah, I got 0.12, as in 0.12%. That is U.S. Senator Rick Scott's winning vote percentage in his 2018 race against then-incumbent Democrat Bill Nelson. He won by just 0.12%, not 12%, but 0.12%, less than one percentage point, almost a tenth of 1%. It's a reminder that it doesn't matter how large or small your margin of victory is. What matters in politics is that you win. And that's something to keep in mind, given that Scott's 2024 re-election effort has gotten off to a pretty rough start on top of what was a politically disastrous year in 2022 for him. Our listeners might recall that in our last podcast, our colleague Stephanie Matat recounted Rick Scott's want-to-forget year in 2022, including not succeeding winning a GOP Senate majority and then this embarrassing defeat in the futile attempt to unseat Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Things have even gone further south in the last couple of weeks when uh, President Joe Biden called out Scott's plan to sunset all federal programs every five years. McConnell then hung out, hung Scott out to dry in the humid Florida air. So you might say, okay, Rick Scott is in trouble next year. Well, maybe not so much. Fact is, Crimson Florida is an extremely favorable place for GOP candidates, even those struggling like Rick Scott. Plus, Democratic candidates, uh, the bench strength is at its lowest point ever. The three best-known Democrats, Charlie Crist, Val Demings, and Nikki Freed, all had even worse 22 than than Scott did. So if you're thinking, hmm, what about an intra-party challenge within the GOP party in the primary. Well, remember, Scott is very wealthy and can self-finance an inundation of attack ads against any opponent. So yeah, Rick Scott coming off a bad 2022 is having an equally bad start to 2023. But in politics, it doesn't matter how difficult the slog is. You just need a majority of the votes. And Rick Scott has shown that he knows how to win those really narrow victories and races. Yeah, Mitch McConnell knifing Rick Scott like that, uh, saying that he's going to have a hard time getting reelected in his own state was really remarkable. And, you know, it it is true. Social Security and Medicare being vulnerable on those two issues are a big deal uh, in Florida. And, um, you know, it's not just Democrats uh, questioning Scott's plan. It's Republicans like McConnell as well. So you would think that that would really uh, potentially be a big liability for him. But you're right, Antonio, there's it's hard to imagine who the Democrat is who could step up uh, to challenge Scott at this point. So um, he's he's kind of lucking out in the sense that uh, Ron DeSantis has really made the state a lot redder and uh, Democrats 
don't have uh, anybody who can really drive home those points about uh, uh, his views on entitlement programs. Well, my number is 699000 That's how much money Richard Corcoran is making annually as the interim president for New College. Corcoran's contract is the latest point of a contention at New College, which DeSantis termed upside down last month when he appointed six new board members in an effort to overhaul the small Sarasota school. The board members hired Corcoran, DeSantis's former education secretary and a close ally of the governor, as interim president this week. Even before Corcoran's contract was approved, his selection was drawing complaints of political cronyism because of his close ties to the governor. Then when his salary was revealed this week, it raised even more questions, with some calling him a grifter who was using his close ties to DeSantis to land an outside salary on the taxpayer dime. Corcoran makes more than double New College's previous president, Patricia uh, Oker, who was uh, making around uh, $305,000 a year. And Corcoran's salary is comparable to presidents at much bigger schools, such as Florida State University and the University of Central Florida. Those schools have tens of thousands of students, while New College has just 700. But Corcoran supporters say he deserves to make a big salary because he's got a big job ahead of him. New College's new board chair essentially compared Corcoran to a wartime president who will be in the hot seat as he tries to overhaul the school. Who knew that the war on woke paid so well? That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy, and thanks to all of you for listening. We're out of here.